Kronos, a techno-thriller in ten episodes, written by William Hearn. Narrated by the author. Episode 10. Trapped. Chapter 48. I raced down the stairs of the lighthouse and through into the cottage. We've got trouble, I shout. The Bratva is coming. Max looks at me in shock. We've got to get out of here, he says. They mustn't get Phaser. There's no way out, I say. The causeway's flooded, remember? How many? Mina asks. I shake my head. Not sure. I couldn't see clearly in the moonlight. They have two boats, though. Max gulps. We've got no choice. We're going to have to stay here and hope your friend reaches us in time. I nod. Agreed. We're going to have to barricade ourselves in here. Mina looks around. We need a safe place for Faser, she says. What about the lighthouse? There's a small living area on the third floor, I say. It's not much, but it's high up. Should be out of reach. OK, says Mina, her mind clearly made up. Right, let's get moving. Max, you hold Faser. I'll carry the supplies. She reaches out and touches me on the arm. Tom, it's down to you to fend them off. Can you manage that? On my own, I ask. Yes, she says. There's no other choice. I need Max to help me with Faser. I say nothing. Well, if you like, I'll stay here and defend us all, says Mina, growing impatient. And you deliver the child. Just remember that if the baby stops breathing, CPR is best done using two or three fingers of the hand at a rate of three or four compressions every... OK, OK, I say, relenting. I'll stay here and do my best. Max picks up his wife in his arms, wrapping her in a blanket. He carries her out of the room and into the lighthouse. Mina follows with the medical supplies and the water. I listen to the sound of their hurried footsteps receding into the distance. I'm left in the room, alone. Yes, I'll stay here and fend the brat for Roth, I say to no one in particular. By myself, against a group of military professionals, who are probably armed. No, not a problem. I go over to the cottage window and look out on the bay. The two boats are close to the lighthouse now. I can see figures in each boat now. I count them carefully. There's two in one and three in the other. Five in total. I pause and consider what to do. I can barricade the window of the cottage with the shelving, but the door is a problem. Although it's solidly made of steel, it opens outward, and the only way of securing it is on the outside. There's no way I can lock it shut on the inside. I can try to jam the door in place, but that's not going to stop a couple of determined attackers for more than a moment or two. I take a deep breath and make a decision. There's no way that I can defend the cottage. I will have to retreat into the lighthouse proper. I run through the corridor into the lighthouse and race up the stairs to the second floor. I go into the storeroom and start rummaging around, looking for anything that I can use as a weapon. 
I find a couple of old semaphore flags and little else. There's an old rope coiled in the corner of the room, however, and I pick it up and sling it over my shoulder. I'm about to give up on the search when I notice a cardboard box. Inside is a small hacksaw. An idea forms in my mind. I grab the saw and leave the room. I cross over the gap in the walkway using the plank, then turn around and pull the plank over to my side. I find the midway point of the plank and start to cut the wood with the saw. I keep sawing until I'm about three quarters through the wood. I then push the plank back over the gap, making sure that the sawed cut is on the underside of the plank, out of sight of anyone crossing. My carpentry complete. I race up the stairs to the gallery and look out. The boats have now landed on the rocky outcrop. I watch as four of the figures spread out to encircle the cottage and lighthouse. One man remains behind with the boats. As he waits, I see a glint of metal around his hand level in the weak moonlight. He's armed with a gun. I presume that the others are too. Through the darkness comes Christoph's booming voice. Tom, Max, Phaser, that was a clever trick you pulled with the cube servers, but we have you surrounded now. Come out of the building right now, and no one will get hurt. You have my word. You have my word, I think to myself. Yeah, right. Just like you fixed it so we'd run out of petrol heading away from the exchange point. Christoph pauses, waiting for a response. I decide to say nothing. Why give a clue as to our exact location? Christoph continues. Very well. In five minutes, I will send my people in to get you. They will use whatever force is necessary to subdue you. It will not be pleasant, I can assure you of that. I suggest you give yourselves up before then. I head back down the stairs and look in on Phaser and Co. She's lying on the camp bed, with Max sitting down beside her, holding her hand. She's groaning and sweating profusely. The contractions have clearly begun again. Mina looks round at me. The contractions are coming fast now, she tells me. I don't think we've got long to wait. The Bratva has landed, I say. Christoph's given us five minutes to surrender. After that, he says he'll be coming in to get us. Max snorts. We have to hold out, he says. They're not getting their hands on us again. I'm doing what I can, I say, trying to sound reassuring. There are five of them, though, and they're carrying guns. Do your best, Max says simply. I leave the room and head back up to the gallery. I keep low to the floor in order to avoid being spotted and scan round, trying to spot our attackers. The only figure I see is by the boats. One minute left, Christoph calls out from below. This is your last chance. Give up now, and this can all be over peacefully. I slink back down the stairs and head to the bottom of the stairs to the second floor. I squint round the corner. I can see the gap in the walkway and the plank over it. From far below, I hear quiet footsteps. They move cautiously, slowly, 
getting closer all the time. Peering round the corner, I spot Dum coming along the walkway. He's dressed in a police uniform again. A small, powerful-looking handgun is in his right hand. Dum comes to the gap in the floor. He pauses and looks down at the long drop to the ground. He spits and pauses, listening for the sputum to hit the floor. Very carefully, with his arms spread out wide for balance, he starts to inch across the plank. Dum gets halfway across the plank. The plank squeaks but doesn't break. I start to panic, realizing that my trap isn't springing. I have to act. I grab the rope from around my shoulders and quickly tie one end of it to the staircase's handrail. Still holding the other end, I race out onto the walkway and onto the plank, rushing towards Dum. Before Dum can react, our combined weight causes the partially sawn plank to crack into two. The plank and the two of us plunge through the gap, me still holding tightly onto the rope. I feel the rope tighten in my hands. I hold on grimly as the rope snaps taut. My arms are nearly wrenched out of their sockets as the rope arrests my fall, but somehow I manage to cling on. Dum continues to fall, a scream on his lips. This cry stops suddenly as he hits the ground. His body crumples and his head ends up at a 90-degree angle to the rest of his body. I dangle from the rope some five metres above the ground. From above me, I hear a snapping sound as the fibres of the rope start to break. It's not designed to carry my amount of weight and certainly not to handle such a load so suddenly. There's a loud snap as the last fibres break and my plunge downwards resumes. I bend my legs, getting ready to hit the floor. I hit the ground, hit it hard. I manage to roll on the side on impact and avoid breaking any bones. I lie for a moment dazed, looking up at the gap in the walkway above. It seems a long way up. Did I really fall all that way? I stagger to my feet, checking myself for broken bones. My left wrist is sore, a sprain perhaps, but apart from that I'm uninjured, which is more than I can say for poor Dumb. I check for a pulse on his body, but find none. The fall must have broken his neck. I scrabble around, looking for Dumb's gun. I find it in the corner. It appears undamaged. I tuck it into my belt and listen intently for other sounds. As I listen, I realise that the sounds from above me have changed. I can no longer hear Phaser's cries of pain. There are still cries but they are much thinner and higher pitched. The cries of a baby. Phaser has had her child. I hear footsteps above me. Max appears in the gap, looking down. Tom, he shouts. What happened? Are you okay? More or less, I say, rubbing my wrist. It could have been a lot worse. Phaser's had the baby, Max says. We have a son. Congratulations, I say. I look at the time on the display of my phone. It's well past midnight, which means it's now Christmas Day. You have a Christmas baby? Yes, I know, replies Max. It should make remembering the kid's birthday easy, 
not that we're going to be forgetting the events surrounding his birth any time soon. Faiza told me, I tell him, you know, about her one-night stand. Can you tell if he's yours? I don't care, Max says. Whatever his parentage is, he is my son. At that moment, my phone rings. I answer. It's Ruth calling, but I can barely hear her due to the amount of background noise. Where are you? I ask. Sounds as if you're in the middle of a waterfall. I told you I was getting alternative transport, replies Ruth. Well, I found something. A helicopter. A helicopter, I say. How on earth did you manage that? I have my ways, replies Ruth, enigmatically. I'm ten minutes out from you. Make sure you're ready for pickup when I arrive. I think frantically. The rocky outcrop that the lighthouse and cottage is built on is too small and uneven to land on. There's not enough room to land the helicopter by the lighthouse, I tell her. Then we'll go with plan B, says Ruth. This helicopter has a winch and a rope ladder. We'll use that instead. Get everyone to the top of the lighthouse and I'll pick you up from there. OK, I say. There's one thing you should know. The Bratva is on to us. They're outside the lighthouse. Then we better make the pick-up quick, says Ruth. Hang in there until I arrive. She drops the call. Ruth's on her way, I tell Max. We're going to evacuate by helicopter from the top of the lighthouse. She'll be here in ten minutes. We'll be ready, says Max. But what about you? How are you going to get up here? Don't worry about me, I tell him. I'll find a way. Just make sure that everyone else is ready. OK, says Max. But if I'm not there when the helicopter arrives, I continue. Don't wait for me. Just go. I don't want Faser and your son in danger for a moment longer than necessary. I understand. And thank you, says Max. He disappears from view. I hear his footsteps recede. Now I'm on my own again, the full scale of my plight becomes apparent to me. The plank is smashed beyond all hope of repair, and the gap in the walkway is far too big to jump across. I look around for something else that I can use to put across the hole, but find nothing suitable. And, I remind myself, there are at least four of the Bratvars still around. I doubt that they will politely step aside to permit Ruth to rescue us. Unless she's commandeered an armoured gunship, I doubt that the helicopter will be able to take more than a couple of shots. I return my attention to how to get back to the top floor of the lighthouse. As I'm thinking, an image of the outside of the lighthouse pops into my mind. I recall that there were a set of iron rungs set on the outside, leading to the gallery. The ones low down have been removed, but the ones further up are intact. Perhaps I could reach them from the roof of the cottage. Cautiously, I creep through the corridor into the cottage. My gun held out in front of me, safety off. There's no sign of Christoph, Nadia or anyone else. I softly climb the dusty steps to the top floor of the cottage. A window looks out onto the roof of the cottage. 
I open the window as silently as I can, inch by inch. Then I climb through it, onto the roof. The slate roof is slanted, making balance difficult. I edge along the roof, holding on to anything I can, drain pipe, window ledge and the like, for balance. The wind from the sea is blowing into my face, chilling me. I can already feel my teeth beginning to chatter. Ahead of me looms the outside wall of the lighthouse. Just above the height of my head are the first of the iron rungs. Unfortunately, the roof of the cottage dips down just before it reaches the lighthouse. I'm going to have to make a jump for the rungs. I'm still pondering how best to make the jump when I accidentally step on a loose slate. The slate careers down the roof and disappears. A few seconds later, I hear a loud crash as the slate hits the ground. I pin myself to the roof, absolutely still. Did Christoph and the others hear that? With it so loud, how could they not? I hear running footsteps from the other side of the cottage. They slow and stop below me, out of sight, just where the slate must have fallen. I slow my breathing and stay as silent and still as I can. I finger the trigger of my gun, ready to fire if I get the opportunity. I keep myself still, straining to hear any sound that might give me a clue as to what is going on below me. I hear nothing. I wait. I look towards the lighthouse and the rungs embedded in it. The jump looks manageable, and the climb shouldn't take me more than a few minutes. However, while I'm climbing, I'm going to be an easy target. Maybe if I cause some kind of distraction first. My thoughts are disrupted by the sound of footsteps on the staircase. They're quiet, but I can hear and feel them through the roof. I turn my head towards the window that I came through. Suddenly, a head appears through it, looking towards me. Instinctively, I fire my gun. The figure cries out. Is it a feminine scream? I can't really tell, and disappears from sight. A shot comes from below me, and a slate just by my head shatters. I turn and look down, and spot another figure, gun held high, pointing towards me. I shoot once, twice, I'm not quite sure, and the figure crumples. I'm panting from the adrenaline surge. I try to calm myself down, and listen for further movements. Nothing. I wait for maybe two or three minutes, but still hear nothing. Roof will be arriving any minute now. As I've ordered Max to make sure that the helicopter leaves as soon as they are aboard, I can't delay any longer. I edge myself along the rest of the high roof and reach the point where it ducks down. A meter also in front of me is the first of the iron rungs. It looks solid enough. The jump doesn't look that bad, although if I miss, I'm going to fall a good few metres. I suspect that I have only one chance to make the jump correctly. I tuck the gun back into my belt. I take a step or two backwards, and then a couple deep breaths. I throw myself forward, jumping as my feet reach the end of the roof. I sail through the air, my arms outstretched, reaching for the rung in front of me. I hit the wall, hit it hard enough that it knocks the air out of my lungs and my vision goes dark for a moment. Dazed, I scrabble for the rung to cling onto. 
My right hand feels something solid, and I grab hold of it. My sprained wrist slams against the wall, and I scream out in pain. However, I manage to cling on to the rung. I pull myself up and hook my left arm over the next rung. Something clatters onto the roof far below me. I look down and see my gun lying on the low roof. It must have slipped from my belt when I hit the wall. I let out an involuntary curse as I realise that I have no way of retrieving it. I start to climb the rungs. A couple of them don't feel very solid when I touch them, and so I try to avoid them and hold on to the ones immediately above or below them. Fortunately, though, the majority of the rungs are still solid. The rungs feel icy cold as I grasp them. I climb the rungs one by one. It's slow work as my injured wrist means that I can only pull myself up with my other arm. Finally, however, I reach the top, puffing and panting from the exertion. I pull myself over the rails of the gallery and stop to rest for a moment, slumped against the glass of the lamp room. I hear a buzzing sound in the distance. I pull myself to my feet and scan the sky. I can see a white light far out from the coast, fast heading towards us. It must be Ruth. Where are the others? I think to myself, suddenly irked. Why hasn't Max gotten everyone up here already? All they had to do was to stroll up one flight of stairs. I had to climb up the outside of the whole bloody lighthouse. I race down the stairs and burst into the room. Suddenly, I understand the reason why the gallery was empty. Mina, Phaser, plus newborn son, and Max are all in here. Unfortunately, so is Christoph, armed with a gun. He too is dressed in British police uniform. A superintendent, at first glance. How typical. Even when in disguise, Christoph insists on having seniority. Hello, Mr. Jenkins, says Christoph. I knew you'd turn up sooner or later. I gather that rescue is on the way. By helicopter, I believe. Most impressive. He waves his gun in the direction of the door. Now, let's go welcome your would-be rescuer. Chapter 49 Christoph herds us out of the room and up the stairs to the gallery. Faser insists on carrying her baby, despite having difficulty standing. She leans on Max heavily while climbing the stairs. Christoph follows behind us, his gun constantly trained on us. We reach the top and step out onto the gallery. Christoph stays low, partially hidden by the stairs. The helicopter is much closer now. It's a small rescue-type chopper. I catch myself wondering whether it is big enough for us all. Then I realise, with a shudder, that Christoph's plans probably don't involve any of us. As long as the helicopter can fit one passenger, him, then it will serve his purpose. The helicopter reaches us and circles round. Through the windscreen I see a familiar red head at the controls. Roof is flying. Is there any vehicle she hasn't mastered? I rack my brains, trying to think of some way of warning her about Christoph, but nothing comes to mind. The helicopter slows its circling and moves in above us. As it hovers, 
An automated winch causes a rope ladder to descend. Ruth's voice booms from a tannoy underneath the copter. Climb in quickly. I can only hover for a few minutes. Christoph comes up behind us. Time I introduced myself to the pilot, he says. He reaches up and starts to climb up the ladder. Just as his feet touch the lowest rung of the ladder, the helicopter judders, causing the ladder and Christoph to slam hard against the lighthouse's lamp room. There's a cracking sound, but the room's strengthened glass doesn't break. Christoph's gun goes flying out of his hand and skitters across the floor. Max and I see our chance. We leap at Christoph, pulling him backwards, off the ladder and towards the railings. Christoph lashes out with his leg, narrowly missing one of my knees. He reaches over for his gun, but Max hurtles into his middle. Christoph stumbles backwards and falls down the metal stairs. His head hits a couple of the metal steps hard on the way down, leaving a trail of blood. His body slumps to the bottom of the stairs. He doesn't move again. Into the copter, I shout, fighting to make myself heard against the roar of the helicopter's engine and rotor blades. Fazak climbs up the ladder first, the baby now strapped to her back, using Max's jacket as an impromptu sling. Mina and Max then follow. While they're climbing, I decide to check on Christoph. I go down the stairs and check his body. As I suspected, I can find no sign of a pulse. I head back up the stairs. Mina and Max have climbed into the helicopter and are gesturing at me urgently to get aboard too. I grab hold of the rope ladder and start to climb. The rumble from the helicopter's engine increases and the ladder and me start to rise into the air. Roof clearly wasn't joking about not hanging around. I feel a tug on the ladder. Then something grabs both of my legs. I look down and see Nadia grimly holding on to my ankles. She's bloodied. There's a deep cut on the side of her face, but she's most definitely alive. I struggle to free my legs from her clutch but she clings on. I try to kick her in the head, but she dodges to strike. I do at least succeed in kicking her in the back and dislodging the gun she had stashed in her belt. It falls down onto the gallery floor, now fast receding below us. Still holding on to me, Nadia starts to climb up past me. You are going nowhere, she snarls. She kicks my feet away from the ladder and I'm left dangling by my arms. Below me is nothing but a drop of several hundred metres into the shallow sea. My sprained wrist screams in torment at the abuse, but I manage to hang on. I have to. At this height, I have no doubt that falling would be fatal. I look up towards the helicopter and see Mina and Max staring anxiously out of the hatch. I imagine Phaser inside, protectively cradling hers and Max's new baby. I know that I cannot allow Nadia to get up there. If there's a price to be paid to ensure that, then so be it. Release the ladder! I scream up at them. Cut the ropes if you have to! Max ducks back into the helicopter. I hope that he understood my message. Nadia continues to try to climb past me on the ladder. 
I resist as much as I can, but she is strong, very strong. I manage to hook one of my legs back onto the ladder and give myself a little more leverage. This frees up one of my arms, and I make the most of it, aiming an elbow at Nadia's head. She blocks the blow easily with an upraised arm, but her climb is slowed temporarily. Nadia drives her fist into my stomach, winding me. It's all I can do to remain hanging on to the ladder, and she is able to finish climbing over me. Time you got off, she shouts. I look up and see one of her boots descending towards my face. I dodge the blow to my head, but at the expense of taking the boot to my shoulder. I hear a crack as my collarbone takes the impact. Then a wave of pain hits my shoulder and I scream in agony. It's all I can do to remain clutching onto the ladder with my one good arm. Nadia raises her boot, preparing to strike down on me again. There's little I can do to resist. Let it be a quick death, is all I can think. Don't let me survive the fall and drown in the cold. I watch as Nadia's boot reaches the top of its arc. It pauses and then starts to move down towards me. I brace myself for the force of the impact. I shut my eyes and... And wait. I open my eyes again. Nadia's foot is still above me, but it's now hanging limply. I look up beyond the foot and catch sight of Nadia's face. It's expressionless. The eyes are lifeless. Blood trickles down from the top of the scalp. Nadia's body loses contact with the ladder and she falls past me, towards the sea below me. I watch as her body hits the water and disappears beneath the waves. I look up and see that Max is back at the hatch. He's holding a gun. He's staring past me, in shock, at the stretch of water where Nadia fell. I pull myself up the ladder. It's slow work due to my suspected broken collarbone, but I manage to make it in the end. Mina and Max grab hold of me at the top and haul me into the body of the helicopter. I lie there panting. Ruth, in the cockpit, turns around and gives me the thumbs up. With my one good remaining arm, I weakly reciprocate. Max kneels down beside me. We need to get you checked out, he says, looking with concern at the state of my shoulder. Ruth's plotted a course to the nearest hospital. We should be there in less than 20 minutes. Where did you get the weapon from? I ask Max. Ruth had it, Max says. She offered to do the shooting, but only if I took over the controls of the copter. I figured that she was better off at the controls than I was. I didn't know you knew how to fire a gun, I say. That was mighty accurate shooting back there. Max pauses, looking embarrassed. I've never used a gun before, he admits. I just pointed it and hoped for the best. I figured I had a 50-50 chance of hitting Nadia and not you. Despite the pain in my shoulder, wrist and abdomen, I can't resist breaking out into a laugh. Ruth banks the helicopter slightly and makes a coarse turn. Chapter 50 Seven Months Later Fifteen minutes to go, Max calls out from the other room. Send him these slides now. I know, I know, I grumble back at him. 
one last graphic to change, and then I'll send them. Promise. I sit at my desk, hammering away at my keyboard, rushing to complete a plethora of last-minute changes. The cottage in Galloway Forest Park has been my home for the past six and a half months. Collins and I had agreed that I couldn't go to the police to clear my name until we were ready to make our announcement. As a result, I had been living the life of a recluse, limited to the grounds of Collins's home in the park. I'm allowed to take the occasional short walk outside the walls of the estate, but only after dark. I try not to think of it as house arrest, but that's what it effectively is. But at least it's a very comfortable one. The cottage is well equipped with all mod cons. The internet connection is excellent. I have the sole use of a multi-gigabit per second connection and I have access to all the books, television programs and movies that I could possibly wish for. I don't get many visitors, for obvious reasons. Collins looks in from time to time, but, as he travels a lot, most of our communication is done via email, IRC and video calls. Ruth drops by three times a week with food and other supplies. I think she might be finally warming to me. Over the past month, she's accepted with increasing frequency my offers of staying for a coffee. I'm working up to offering to cook dinner for her, followed perhaps by a walk in the starlight. My life as a near hermit doesn't mean that I've been bored. Quite the contrary, in fact. I have more work on my hands than I can possibly manage. Max has helped a lot, remotely of course, though the duties of fatherhood do limit his involvement at times. Today, the result of our labours get announced, with Collins and the other surviving members of Kronos making a big presentation on the opening day of the DEFCOM conference in Las Vegas. Collins had invited Max to fly out to Las Vegas and be part of the event, but Max decided to come and visit me, to keep me company. I'm trying to play it cool and not let on how much that means to me. I'm not being altogether successful, though. Max comes into my room, cradling his mobile between shoulder and ear. He's right here, he says to whoever he's speaking to, presumably Collins. He's sending it right now. I save the slide deck I've been working on and hit send in my email application. I let out a sigh of relief. All done, I say. There's nothing left to do except watch the event. Max nods. Still cradling his phone, he walks over to his laptop and logs into the DEFCON live stream. It's transmitting a panoramic view of the auditorium in the Las Vegas hotel, sound muted. The auditorium is packed. I can't see an empty seat anywhere. There must be a good couple of thousand people present. But... What else would you expect for a session with the title Mehmet Yilmaz Speaks? You got the slides? Good, says Max to Collins. Check that slide 10 is what you wanted, he asks, pausing and waiting for a response. It is excellent, he says in response to something Collins said. He turns to me and whispers, Collins is happy, finally. It's showtime. Phaser and Max's baby is now seven months old and is proving to be a real handful for his happy but stressed parents. They named him Thomas Buckeridge Whitting. 
I still feel a rush of pride every time I think about having someone named after me. There's a sudden blast of sound to accompany the live stream video. The myriad noises of an audience not yet at rest. People talking, laughing, sneezing and coughing. Then the lights dim in the auditorium. Collins walks out onto the stage. He's holding a few sheets of paper in his hands. More for reassurance than anything, as I know that he has memorised every line of what he is going to say, as well as a presentation clicker. There's muted applause from around the auditorium. Most of the audience is probably wondering just who the hell he is. Good morning, Collins says. Thanks for coming today. My name is Peter Collins, he continues. I and six colleagues of mine created Cube. Collins pauses to let the sudden flurry of chatter in the auditorium die down as people realise they are witnessing history being made. We will prove that we are who we say we are through the sending out of a press release that will be signed with the private encryption key of Mehmet Yomez. We will willingly sign up to independent verification of our identities and background. As Collins speaks, presentation slides are displayed behind him the slides that I sent him no more than five minutes previously. Let me begin by saying a little about our initial reasons for creating Cube. We wanted to show that a completely decentralised currency system was possible, that there was no absolute need for a currency to require a central bank or other sponsoring body to stand behind it. Our original intent was to create it as just a proof of concept, However, it succeeded beyond any of our wildest dreams. Today, over 1 billion cube transactions are carried out every day, and the currency is used in every country in the world. Some countries have tried to outlaw it, but with no sponsoring body to go after, they have all failed. Cube has been proven to work at scale. It is resilient and has resisted every effort to date to hack it or to fraudulently create currency. The algorithms and processes that we selected all those years ago have been shown to be the right ones. We, the creators of Cube, have looked on with great pride and satisfaction as the currency gained popularity. We chose to continue to remain anonymous to avoid the tiresome pressures that come with fame and because we felt that we would have a greater impact for good if the world did not know our identities. However, for reasons that I will go into shortly, today we are voluntarily stepping forward and revealing ourselves publicly. This is not something we do lightly. But, in view of certain recent events, it is something we feel we must do. Today, we are announcing the formation of the Cube Foundation, with the six of us on the trustee board. We will appoint professional leadership to run the organisation and conduct the day-to-day -day development and support of Cube. We will oversee and provide guidance where necessary. By creating the foundation, we will open the currency's operation up to the same level of scrutiny as has been given to the software's open-source code. We have nothing to hide and will demonstrate this by taking these steps. Collins pauses for a moment before continuing. 
So why are we doing this? Because cube was, without our knowledge, tampered with. Every cube address generated has also been tagged with the ID of the device that generated it. Collins's bombshell sparks much talk and even shouting in the auditorium. A flurry of flashes goes off as press photographers take photo after photo. Collins waits for the hubbub to die down. The tracking code was inserted by the seventh creator of Cube, acting without the knowledge or say-so of the group as a whole. We don't know his motives for putting the tracking code in place, but we suspect that he was working for a US government agency. Even more noise in the auditorium. Collins again pauses and waits for it to subside. The person who added this code is no longer alive, killed during an attempt to keep the tracking function secret. His death is the subject of an ongoing police investigation, and so we cannot say any more about this matter until that has been concluded. Further noise and camera flashes forces Collins to pause again. To resolve the tracking issue, we are today announcing version 2 of Cube. While retaining full backward compatibility with the original version, this new version has been written completely from scratch. None of the code written by our erstwhile colleague has been included in the new version. The software is entirely open source and we invite the world to scrutinise it and look for malicious code. To encourage this scrutiny, the Foundation will be establishing the most generous bug bounty programme ever. Those who find defects in the code will be well compensated for their efforts. We realise that many, if not all of you, will have funds associated with existing wallets that contain traceable addresses. You will undoubtedly want to transfer these funds across to new version 2 wallets that will not be trackable. To enable this to be done anonymously, we have created a new system called the Exchanger. It will allow you to securely and confidentially transfer your funds from your version 1 wallet to any version 2 wallet that you wish. More flashes and chatter. Many of you will, I'm sure, be wondering how these exchanges will be done confidentially, given that all these transactions will have to appear on the global ledger. To ensure that no linking is possible of the two transactions involved in each exchange, the Foundation will be using up to $10 billion worth of its own funds of Cube to ensure that transaction amounts are randomised. The exchange system is available via the Foundation's website and will be going live at the end of this session. The full source code to it will be published, alongside that for Cube version 2, at the same time. The Exchange is the project that Max and I have been labouring on for the past few months. Its task is relatively straightforward. But ensuring that no one can trace anyone from their version 1 cube address is difficult. Credit to Max for coming up with the idea of using the Foundation's own funds to ensure that every outgoing transaction is more than the incoming one. The amount added is randomly determined and can be anything from one cent to several hundred dollars. This has the side benefit of motivating people to use the exchanger as they may receive substantially more units than they put in. 
Think of it as a lottery where everyone is guaranteed to win at least a small prize. Announcing this at an event in Las Vegas seems highly appropriate. We will be making ourselves available to the world's media for questions throughout the rest of the day. For now, you can find more information about all of this on the Foundation's website. And with that, Collins turns and strides from the stage. He doesn't look round as he ducks beneath the curtain. A few seconds later, he returns to the stage, this time accompanied by the other five members of Kronos, including Sam's. The audience gives them a rousing reception, many rising to their feet to give them a standing ovation. The six remaining members of Kronos wave at the audience as they are applauded. There's much hugging and backslapping. Sam's is warmly embraced by each of the other men, Collins especially. It's as if the Beatles held a reunion, remarks Max. If there were six of them, and if they published all of their music anonymously, I reply. Do you think that there's still a sleeper agent remaining within the group? Max asks. I don't know, I answer. And to be honest, I don't think it matters anymore. With the creation of the foundation, the group has made it difficult, if not impossible, for any remaining rogue party to disrupt operations. Anything they tried to do would have to be done in public, and so would be open to scrutiny. Finally, the Kronos members take their leave of the stage, darting back under the curtain. The lights in the auditorium come up, and the audience stands up to head outside. Max shuts the lid of his computer and comes over to me. He shakes my hand. We did it he says simply. I hope so, I say. I guess we'll find out in an hour or two just how solid the exchange really is. I look at my watch and get up out of my seat. In the meantime, I say, I have to go and hand myself in. Max looks surprised. So soon? he asks. That was my deal with Collins, I tell him. As soon as we made the announcement, I was to go to the police and give them my account of what really happened with Regan. We walk to the front of the cottage. Outside, parked in the driveway, is the Range Rover. Roof is at the wheel. Roof's taking you? asks Max. Yes, I answer. She's driving me to the police station in Dumfries. Collins has arranged for a solicitor to meet me there. Good luck says Max. Let me know if you need anything. He hugs me. Thanks, I say. I'll be fine. I open the passenger side front door of the Range Rover and start to climb in. Max reaches out and touches my arm. Do you think it was worth it? He asks. I mean, in the end? I consider his question for a moment. It was a hell of a price to pay. I say at last. Buckeridge, all those people at the commune. But yes, I think it was. Things have worked out okay for us. You have Phaser and your son, both safe. I will hopefully soon be exonerated. And Kronos has achieved what every startup dreams of doing going public. That was the final episode of Kronos. Written by William Hearn and narrated by the author. For more information about this novel, 
including how to obtain an ebook or printed hardback copy, please visit the website at kronosthenovel.com. This audio recording is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License.